Welcome to this special edition of the Fertility Podcast in association with MediChex, the UK's largest home blood testing company. In today's episode, we will be having a chat with experts from MediChex about the tests they have developed to help you understand more about optimizing your fertility. We're going to be looking at the tests available and how accompanied with significant lifestyle changes, they can help you optimize your fertility and ultimately your pregnancy. We'll be explaining what they show, how they can help you and where you can go for more support. So we're going to be speaking to Dr. Sam Rogers, Medical Director of Medichex. Sam is also a GP and a keen street photographer. Hello, Sam. Hello there. Sam will explain how the tests have been developed. And we're going to be talking to Dr. Natasha Fernando, who's Head of Clinical Excellence, talking about key lifestyle changes you can make. Hello, Natasha. Hello there. And Kate Davis, fertility nurse consultant and, of course, co-host of this podcast, who's working with Medichex in the creation of their fertility tests and content. Hello, Kate. Hello. Kate's going to talk about ways to understand your cycle more. So as a starting point, Sam, let's talk a bit more about how Medichex has been developing new tests and what the team has been looking at in terms of of our lifestyle. We started really with a, a range of tests that were... They were quite medical in the sense that they looked at people's hormone levels. And when we were looking at the, the reasons why people were taking those tests, many of them were posing fertility questions as part of that. That entailed us looking at everything from which biomarkers do people need to understand their fertility to the questions that we should be asking people as, as they order the test to the education needs of our doctors to help them with interpreting it. It's been a really good process for us. It's given us the way we now design our blood tests, which is a sort of end-to-end approach. And do you think that people realise how much we can learn from our blood in terms of what we can find out and how it can impact then on your on your lifestyle and the things that you're trying to do in, in, in everyday so I life? Think, I think people do realise that there's a lot of, lot of information within their blood results. But the thing that we do at MediChex, which I, I think makes us quite unique is we we will look at people's medical history at their lifestyle at their diet activity energy levels and tie that information together with the information we've gleaned from their their blood results so you you can have a blood test and you you get some numbers maybe you get told whether they're normal or abnormal but but how do those relate to the individual that's that's taken them so yeah we help we help people contextualize information in their blood and are we at a point where people are much more comfortable with doing home blood tests? Because it seems like over the last few years, this empowerment, especially coming from a fertility point of view, and we're always talking about giving people more information and enabling them more to hopefully get them to a place where they don't have to walk through, for example, a fertility clinic doors. Do you feel people are more comfortable and getting more confident about doing these kind of tests and then going to their GP or their medical professional and saying, look, I've done this, I found this out? Yeah, I think people are. I mean, it's I, I find when I talk to people about what we do as a company, I, I still get a response of, well, I didn't know you could do that. that that's the most common one. So actually making people aware that they, they can start to find out more about the workings of their body through, through blood tests um, is a, that's a key thing that we need to be doing. But for the people who, who are familiar with the fact that you can do a home blood test, yeah, I think people are getting more comfortable with that and they're, they're getting um, sort of greater insights into the way their, their body works. They're, they're, the repeat customers that we have, we find they're getting much more informed about how behaviours and their lifestyle will, will impact upon their, their blood test results. In terms of becoming more comfortable, though, part of that is about how easy or difficult it is to actually do the test itself. 
Now we're talking about the blood tests that are available in terms of fertility and in terms of enabling people to learn about their fertility, to optimise their fertility, to hopefully kind of future-proof their fertility. So let's talk a bit about the baseline tests that people need to be aware of when it comes to understanding more about their fertility. Looking at from the female perspective first, so you've got the the hormones FSH and LH, which the, the brain releases to control um, control periods, control the timing of ovulation. Um, and looking at those in the, the first week of the cycle will, will give you an idea about whether there, there's any disruption going on to hormone levels that might be causing problems. We can look at levels of estradiol. So that's the, the, the main female hormone. Um, and that can give you an idea about whether someone is likely to be ovulating or not. Actually properly measuring ovulation, we, we look at progesterone levels and we look at those seven days before the first day of someone's period. That gives you a, an indication of, of whether ovulation is likely to occur. It's sometimes mistakenly called the 21-day progesterone test. Kate, this bothers you quite a lot, doesn't it? It really bothers me because, yeah, I do see women who are told, no, it needs to be done on day 21 and they've got an incredibly long cycle. And I'm like, no, 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 it needs to be done seven days before your next period. But then equally, where's our crystal ball? Because last time I looked, I don't have one. And so even doing that can be quite difficult. And I think the timing of progesterone is tricky. And sometimes in that situation, I, I, I get two in that yeah. time because you're more likely then to, to see a rise of progesterone at that point. And so we, we find where people are just, just taking the, the one progesterone test, quite a, a lot of results will fall in the range where all we can really say is that ovulation might have happened, yes. but we can't be 100% sure. certain. Absolutely. So we're talking about the kind of initial baseline tests. We've talked a bit about hormone tests. One of the things that is often banded around in the fertility conversations and in terms of fertility MOTs is AMH testing. Can we talk a bit more about that, what you can do and what it ultimately sure. shows? So AMH testing is it's kind of available. So anti-malarian hormone um, is produced by developing eggs in the ovaries. So if you've, if you've got a, a greater number of eggs available, the levels of AMH in the blood will be higher. It's a couple of caveats. So, so women who have PCOS will have higher than expected PCOS levels. So, so that's one potential limitation. Um, and the, the degree of accuracy that it has... Is not great, so it's going to it's going to give women an idea of how they compare to other women in their age group, in terms of the number numbers of viable eggs that are there, um, but it's only part of the puzzle. So you, you've measured the the levels of the hormone that are produced by the eggs, but actually it's a really good idea to, to have a look at the ovaries and see how many developing eggs there are, and there are antral follicle cell count scans that are available to do that, where they they directly count the number of developing eggs that are vis- visible in the ovaries. And with those two pieces of information, it's, it's possible to get an idea of, of how long someone should sensibly wait before, before trying for a baby. I think what people hope is that it, it's almost a crystal ball that's going to give you a precise answer. And that's certainly not the case currently, although I know there is research that's looking looking into the use of AMH to give a, a much more precise estimate of that. And also, I think if women are going through IVF, the IVF clinics often will do an AMH, not so much looking at ovarian reserve and how much they've got left, but actually at the, how likely they are to be successful or to get a good amount of eggs at IVF during um, egg retrieval. So use it from that point of view. Mm. But I think, you know, as Sam was saying, it's it's a useful measurement, but it should never be used as a guarantee of a baby. And I think that's mm. really important to make that, hammer that point home, really. If 
somebody's done a test and it's lower than they, it, it should be, then what's the next step? What's the conversation they should be having? I think, first of all, don't panic. Whilst it could be a reflection of having less less eggs than, than the average woman in that age group, it can still be perfectly normal. When you, when you look at the maths that drives that interpretation, it's not a precise science. So don't presume the worst if you've got a very low level and then go along to talk to your doctor with your concerns about your fertility. The other things that, that would be sensible is perhaps looking um, at the, the baseline hormone levels just to get an idea of whether they're in the appropriate range for, for a woman who's, who's in her fertile years. And I think what I say to my patients who are considering it is it, it gives you choice, although, as we said, it's not a direct and a, a really scientific process necessarily, it gives you choice. So if your AMH was reasonably good, you might think, OK, you know, I'm, I'm not in any major rush personally. I've got timers on my side. I'm, I'm maybe 34 I'm, or younger. That's good. If you got an AMH that was a lot lower for your age and I think that helps you make choices as to okay I'm not going to leave it any longer before I have a baby I'm going to start trying for a baby now or I'm going to seek um, further assistance with assisted conception now because I'm worried about this so I think it gives you choice I think that's a better way of looking at it as well really isn't it yeah yeah definitely gives you an informed choice yeah. um, so I think in, in this day and age um, a lot of women are pressurized by lots of external pressures of career um, and um, find women in their mid-30s in this predicament really should I be focusing on furthering my career or should I actually think about having a a child whilst my biological clock is ticking so if you've got an AMH that's of a really reasonable level you can be a bit more reassured in that respect but on the contrary if it's um, exceptionally low then you know perhaps you should be thinking about it sooner. Let's move on to one of the other fertility issues that people might not have diagnosed because I know that there's a test for it which is thyroid and I know that there's different thyroid tests that there are as well and I know that it's quite confusing and especially when in terms of being overweight there's a whole conversation about BMI levels when you're trying to conceive. Um, What are the thyroid tests and at what point should people start to think about whether it is an underactive or an overactive thyroid? So we, we primarily in our fertility tests, we look at thyroid stimulating hormone. Now that's a hormone that's quite similar in the way it works to LH and FSH that we mentioned earlier. It's a, it's a control hormone, which the, the pituitary gland in the brain uses to control how much thyroid hormone the, the thyroid gland is making. Um, and it's a, it's a really good way of screening for an underlying, underlying thyroid problem. If, if the thyroid gland isn't making enough thyroxine, then TSH levels will start to rise as the pituitary gland tries to kick the thyroid gland into action. An underactive thyroid is, is by far the most common thyroid issue that we're likely to see. Um, and that comes about because thyroxine, it, it almost sort of sets the, uh, the activity level of the body. It's a bit like an accelerator. If you give someone more thyroxine, their heart rate will go up, they'll burn more energy, they might feel a bit, bit, bit anxious as a result. When a thyroid becomes underactive and there isn't enough thyroxine, then they slow down. You can feel quite tired a lot of the time. You can experience problems with gaining weight. Periods can become very light or absent. You get fertility problems as a result of it. And it's another one that's really commonly missed. So I think if you go out into, uh, into the street and you say, who's feeling tired? And who's struggling to control their weight? Well, I know I'd put my hand up, and I, I suspect quite a lot of the, the rest of the street would as well. So it's commonly overlooked. And we use TSH 
to to screen for that. In our fertility tests, the the only other thing we really look at is we we have some thyroid antibody testing available, and that's that's really aimed at, at women who are experiencing recurrent miscarriages. So that's three or more miscarriages um, that they may have gone through. And thyroid disease is a it's common enough that it's often overlooked when thinking about recurrent miscarriage. The only other thyroid testing we have, and this is a little bit specialist, this, but if if someone has a thyroid problem in pregnancy, then monitoring TSH throughout pregnancy is vital. Now, that's not something people should really be doing themselves. That's something they should be doing um, with an endocrinologist and with their obstetrician. And there are um, much tighter guidelines for where they should keep their TSH to guarantee that their their pregnancy is a healthy one. Yeah, and that's the same with IVF. A lot of IVF um, clinics want uh, a TSH to be two or below, mm. and quite substantially below two, actually, in, in some circumstances. So in terms of weight and BMI issues, because we hear it a lot with the fertility podcast, especially if women are overweight, the kind of pressure that's put on them to lose weight in order to successfully get pregnant. So let's just talk a bit about the pressures that people can put on themselves with their weight, either to, 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 to gain or to lose weight, in your experience, Natasha. So I think um, generally aiming for a body mass index uh, between 19 and 25 is actually going to ensure that you're of an optimal weight um, to have the right balance of hormones in your body. Um, So if you're actually, if you're underweight, if you're um, having a BMI below 19, then you're less likely to ovulate. But equally, if you've got a higher BMI above 30, then it may take that bit longer to actually conceive. I think it's important to also get the message across if you are a bit overweight and um, you really want to get into that healthy um, range of BMI, um, not to opt for any crazy crash dieting because um, any dramatic weight losses are going to completely disturb your hormonal balance and reduce And we love bad diets in this country, don't mm. we? Yeah, absolutely. I think the most important thing really is just to... Um, Overall, just go for um, a naturally good um, whole food diet um, with um, unprocessed foods, um, lots of natural ingredients and um, plenty of fruit and veg. But I do feel that that also should come with in moderation. Don't deny yourself all the things that you like because you'll just be unhappy. Yeah, and I agree. So, um, no, definitely. Um, it's about having that fine balance. So yeah. um, not consistently opting for the junk food options, but having a bit more of the good stuff. The other one that I'm quite passionate about is the, the polycystic ovarian syndrome test. Mm-hmm. So that that's something that is commonly diagnosed quite late. Yeah. It takes a, a long, long time for for that to be detected what's for the average women. is that seven years or is it that, is it seven is to seven. eight years yeah which is a long time isn't it yeah. and often it's misdiagnosed mm. or you know or women are told to oh well you know that go away and come back and and not getting that diagnosis and especially if you're not getting that diagnosis early and as women are leaving it obviously later to mm. conceive they can actually be running out of time and from a, a fertility point of view yeah I mean that that it's tremendously frustrating but it's, it's also causing other symptoms as well so that right. people will be wondering why they can't lose weight why they're having issues with with hair growth where they don't want it and losing hair where they do want it on their scalp it's a really distressing and disabling condition mm. it can be relatively easy picked up for many women on a on a blood test mm. 
Absolutely. And I think what we've done with the Medichex um, test, Sam, isn't it, is that we've looked at um, having an initial diagnosis PCOS test, but then also looking at um, the more long-term conditions of PCOS and how we could potentially pick up those. So, for example, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol. And so we've got a two-tier testing that will pick up the long-term conditions as well as getting your initial or helping towards getting your initial diagnosis. So if people have... Uh, maybe a suspicion that that PCOS is what they're dealing with without the diagnosis because hopefully that awareness about what PCOS is and the symptoms that it presents because it doesn't always present no. in one way and we know that there's lean and what's lean and well, it's lean PCOS and traditional, and traditional PCOS, PCOS if you like yeah okay yeah. and from a GP's point of view that's surely hugely helpful that you've got a test that could show and hopefully enhance the number of diagnoses of, of PCOS with women yeah, absolutely. Because I have um, a lot of um, young women who um, come to see me, got irregular periods, abnormal hair growth, got acne. Um, and uh, for several years, they just put it down to, oh, it's just, it's normal. It's just part of who I am. But when these symptoms finally get so troubling, when the acne actually gets so bad, that's making them feel incredibly um, self-conscious. They come asking for, you know, for answers. Um, and um, when you can actually tell them it's all due to this condition and it can be helped in so many ways, um, then they feel incredibly reassured. So we've got the PCOS, we've got the initial hormone test. What about for men? I mean, the, the one hormone that all men are fascinated by is testosterone. Um, they can get quite competitive about it, we've noticed, in terms of comparing their numbers. But we've also got, to, so similar to, to our approach for women, we look at the hormones that control testosterone release. Um, and that's that's good old LH and FSH again. So it's, you know, both women and men have that. That's their, their kind of control hormones. Um, with testosterone... People get very fixated on the total testosterone amount. Um, but the, the, there's a, a little secret the body has, which is it likes to hang on to testosterone. And there's a protein called sex hormone binding globulin, which clings on to testosterone. It means most testosterone in men isn't actually active and available to, to bind with their body tissues. So we look at the amount of testosterone that's free, free testosterone. In some men, they can have a perfectly normal total testosterone level, but the free level is low and that may be causing symptoms for them. So we're talking about testosterone and the test that men can have. And um, when it comes to fertility, we know it's 50-50 male factor. We know that male fertility is on the decline. We know that men are reluctant to talk about it. We know there's a whole host of issues surrounding male fertility, shame, pride issues. And so what we hope with home testing, for example, is that it takes away some of that embarrassment that men might have going to get checked or get more information. And I want to just talk about the different tests that are available along with the testosterone and also the misconception about things like protein shakes and general behaviours, lifestyle things that men might do. So starting with that protein shake conversation, is that something that's you've seen you've heard so a rise see, of i see it amongst our customers i see it actually amongst my I've got, i have teenage daughters and their friends are obsessed with protein i have a, a vegan eldest daughter who her friends are horrified that she's not getting enough protein so so we're a bit protein obsessed at the moment now i think if you're getting dietary protein where you're getting it from nice healthy foods that's great um getting it out of enormous tubs of protein powder may not be the best um, the, the best way of dealing with that. I mean, partly you're, you're loading yourself up, your body up with a, a, a single type of protein. It's not very nutritionally diverse. 
there's there's worries I have about it um, with some less scrupulous protein powder man- manufacturers have been known to to doctor the powders with um, testosterone like compounds so that men get more, more gains at the gym and they sort of wrongly think that's the protein powder that's doing it. It's not that useful for gaining muscle. I think if you have a healthy diet, you're, you're working out regularly at the gym and you don't want gargantuan sort of Schwarzenegger style biceps just rely on a healthy diet. So in terms of the impact on fertility, I mean, we have talked about it on the podcast before, but when it comes to, you know, that that link between trying to look good and obviously be good all around, it has an effect, doesn't it? Yeah, there's been quite a lot of work that um, Professor Alan Pacey has done into steroid use, particularly in protein shakes and male fertility. And there is this correlation between poor sperm parameters and protein shake use and the thing the thought so just as you said um, sam is that there's some potential hormone or steroid compound that is in this these big tubs of protein shakes which probably aren't manufactured in the uk Mm. and therefore aren't under our strict i guess regulations for that type of product so it is a big concern i've got two teenage boys and they don't take protein shakes but Mm. their friends do and i've even had those conversations with the friends and i think their friends are thinking who the hell you know what the (laughs) hell is this woman talking about and clearly they don't care right now but they will in 15 years time when unfortunately they could be facing infertility as a result so it's a worrying concern is it long term then say you're talking you know you're in the gym and you're so passionate about it can it be long term on your sperm health i think the question is i don't think we know so right. much yet i mean certainly taking long-term steroids is going to have yeah. an effect so therefore you could argue that with the protein shakes with that a little bit of steroid in potentially could yeah so with the protein powders they they potentially have these testosterone like chemicals in the nearest thing we see to that is men who are using steroids and when men use steroids the the extra testosterone that they're taking essentially shuts down the testicles the testicles start to shrink and then from that, you, you potentially get an irreversible low levels of fertility or even infertility as a result of it. So it, it, I can imagine if, if there's 20 years of, of protein powder use that someone's used where they're unknowingly taking testosterone-like chemicals, then potentially there is a, a big wave of infertility that, that's waiting to hit us yeah. in the future. And I think the take-home message there is chaps... You're, by taking this, you're improving your muscles, but you're shrinking your testicles. Exactly. <laughs> and that's a really powerful a loss, message. A loss for a gain. Yeah. Whilst we're just focusing on the, the well-being of men's crown jewels, you're talking about men talking to you about their underwear. These are all things to, yeah. to, to think about. So, And this is this is more of my general practice work. Sorry, we, not we in the currently, workplace. We currently, yeah, <laughs> not just day to day. I, I don't ask men in the workplace about their underwear. And I, I don't ask them on Medichecked yet. No, but, but in general practice, when, when someone comes in to see me and, and says, particularly for the men, um, that they're having trouble with fertility and they think it might be to do with their sperm count, pretty much the first thing I ask them is, what kind of pants do you wear? And um, tight pants are a really bad idea. The testicles are designed to hang outside the body. They need to be a bit cooler than the rest of the body for, for sperm manufacture to go on. Um, so just, just getting some loose boxers and some loose trousers is, is a great step for some men. Um, limiting alcohol and coffee intake can help. If you're a smoker, stop it. That's, that's just uh, the, the, the developing sperm are some of the most sensitive cells there are when it comes to stresses from from uh, sort of bad health behaviors um exercise is an interesting one so that's that's got kind of a, a goldilocks relationship with both with testosterone and sperm manufacture and having too little being a bit of a couch potato 
or too much and ju- just sort of running or cycling every day of the week um, can have negative effects on testosterone production and, and, and sperm production. So finding a healthy level of exercise is wise. What about the cycling conversation because of obviously so really, the impact? Yeah, it's a difficult one that. So some papers say that cycling doesn't have an impact. Some papers say that it does have an impact. And the, the last time I went and looked at cycling, I, I really couldn't come away with a concrete answer to that one. But I think if I were seeing a man who was a keen cyclist and who was having issues with their sperm quality, I would advise them to, to ease up on cycling, just see what happens. I was listening to a video that um, Jonathan Ramsey, who's a, a well-respected urologist in, in London, um, and one of the top really one isn't he and he was talking about cycling and how your commute on a bike to work absolutely fine you know half an hour commute but going at it and doing these long cycling where you're putting pressure on the testicles for a long period of time and also for a long period of time your testicles are very close to body because obviously they're in the little lycra shorts then that isn't good so I thought that was quite interesting because you don't want to put men off cycling and Mm. exercising so you can say do your commute but don't go out and thrash yourself on a bike for three hours as you've been the couch potatoes that that cycling little bit of cycling could be a really positive thing absolutely absolutely and um yeah a few other things that I actually advise to my male patients as well who really want to um, improve their fertility levels I just remind men to avoid um very hot tubs um saunas heated car seats as well can be an issue and um, I've actually even come across some papers um, that have actually suggested mobile phone radiation can in the pocket yes yeah absolutely so that's another thing that I advise for my patients um, is to avoid um, keeping mobile phone in the trouser pocket for long periods of time yeah and even laptop on your lap you know that's another thing isn't it laptop off your laps chaps I like that little thing. Just avoiding yeah. the heat <laughs> yeah. anywhere near. Really We're going good. to talk more about more lifestyle and optimization tips. But before we do, I just want to talk about erectile dysfunction because that's a natural way for the conversation to go. But I know <laughs> that there is a test. Doesn't it always? <laughs> it's a blood test for the common causes of it. Erectile dysfunction is a, is a little bit like the, uh, the little canary in the birdcage that coal miners used to take down with them. It's a super early sign that blood, uh, blood vessels are getting furred up with cholesterol. So the, the, the ah. blood vessels in the penis and in the erectile tissue are really narrow. It doesn't take much to, to impact upon how well blood can flow into them. And some cholesterol deposits can do that. So, so one of the things we look for is if a man is having erectile dysfunction, is this actually high cholesterol? Um, the first sign that they've got cholesterol that's damaging their blood vessels. Um, the other biggie is testosterone. Now, testosterone can cause erectile dysfunction if it's low it can also cause a problem with libido, and, and some men will will sort of conflate the two of those in their in their mind. And uh, when they they come to see me, that it, it can take some some questioning to get to the bottom of whether actually it's low libido we're talking about, or or whether it's erectile dysfunction. I think also it's worth saying that, um, especially when we're thinking about fertility, erectile dysfunction can clearly be also for psychological, emotional issues, mm. and especially when couples are trying to conceive the pressure of having to perform around ovulation for men can sometimes create issues such as erectile dysfunction. So it's worth mentioning that as well, that that's a possibility as well as something more physical. Yeah, definitely. So, so a normal a normal blood test doesn't doesn't mean there are no Absolutely. significant causes yeah, there. Yeah. Natasha and Sam, you're both 
you both work as GPs as well. And I'm interested in if somebody then comes to you having done this home test, how that's kind of received, you know, what kind of advice would you give to people listening in in terms of then taking whatever the the results that they've got to have that conversation with their GP? I see the rise of of home blood testing or or self-serve blood testing as being very similar to when Google first appeared on the scene and it was very easy to go off and Google your symptoms and, and go in to see your GP about it. So overall, we are, I, th- I think, helping people to understand the health concerns, helping people to understand the worries they have about their health. They're going to their GPs a bit better informed, perhaps a bit, bit more relaxed than they were before they tested with us. Hopefully, they're starting several steps forward of where they were at the start of the process. Yeah, I completely welcome it. With our current NHS system, our patients, they have an over 40s health check and they have to actually wait until they're over 40 to do a general check to see whether they're actually at risk of any chronic conditions. Through MediCheck's, they're able to actually be a lot more proactive, get checked sooner and start making these changes way in advance before the chronic conditions have the chance to develop. We want to talk about optimising our, our, our diets. We talked about kind of avoiding the tubs of protein and, and finding the protein within you, in your diet. And Natasha, I know it's something you're very passionate about is offering that education about what you can do to optimise your fertility from diet and lifestyle choices. We've touched a bit on exercise. You've recently done a study on a vegan lifestyle, and I'm interested to talk about how lifestyle can be used to optimise outcomes, and especially from a vegan point of view. We're not saying that by eating better, you're definitely going to get a pregnancy, but what we want to say is that you're going to give yourself the best shot by doing all you can with, with, you, with your food. It doesn't have to cross the earth, does it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's part of um, doing what's within your control to optimise your chances of fertility. So um, whatever you can do, um, whether it's through simple changes in your diet or whether it's through exercising more or cutting out unhealthy habits, it's actually going to put you at a greater chance of conceiving sooner rather than later. Most of us know what essentially is a healthy diet, but perhaps need a bit more clarification, a bit more guidance and justification as to why it is so important. Essentially, it means avoiding or minimising the amount of junk foods that you're having, processed foods. These processed foods um, have actually, they're quite refined. They've got um, a lot of unhealthy chemicals and preservatives, which can affect your balance of hormones in your body and um, also um, subject your body to a destructive process called um, oxidative stress. It's essentially a process whereby harmful chemicals in the body called free radicals, they um, they circulate in high amounts um, in response to unhealthy lifestyles and um, they can be quite um, damaging to the cells of your body, including your sperm and eggs. I generally advise um, my patients to go for a more whole food plant-based diet. So it doesn't necessarily mean um, going completely vegan, just means having a lot more plant-based foods in your diet. So more fruit and veg, beans, um, nuts and seeds. And having it in its whole and natural form is best rather than going for a bag of chips. What do you say to people when they're like, but I see Mr. Fat Bloke at the pub drinking pints and eating crap food all the time and he's got three kids. Mm. He's not obviously changed his diet. You know, when people are struggling to conceive, they're trying to do all they can, yet it's still not happening. And 
there's there's quite a lot of guilt as well if they want to have some chips or they want to, I've talked to people who are like I stopped having takeaway because you know I'm trying to conceive what I mean is not having a diet entirely based on, on those um, things yeah, yeah. On, on junk food so it's having that fine balance so having um, a good balance of nutrients that are going to help when you have good whole foods um, it has the antioxidant properties which help counteract the the free radicals that are destructive to your cells um, and um, it helps keep your hormones in balance as well ensures that you're getting all the vital nutrients that you need let's just talk a bit more about the plant-based side of things because obviously there's been a massive increase in kind of a vegan lifestyle and I think there's kind of um, misconceptions about what it is and how it can help and so from both of you I'd be keen to know what it can help and maybe what it can hinder we've done some work looking at people who eat a vegan diet um, within the Medichex tests and by and large they're a really healthy bunch actually I think when someone's taken the decision to go vegan they've they've considered it they've thought about the nutritional deficiencies they, they might be likely to encounter um, so the only thing we we really see that's significant in terms of a negative effect is that B12 levels can be a bit lower and that's no great surprise um, if you're going to if you want decent B12 intake you usually have to eat some kind of animal product to be doing it but on almost every other measure, they were the same or healthier um, than the non-vegans. And that goes for things like the diabetic markers. So HbA1c was significantly lower within our vegan population. Their cholesterol profile was healthier. Um, we did a little bit of looking at hormone levels. We couldn't find any demonstrable difference between vegans and non-vegans. Um, but there, there, there is this belief that seems to be taking root, and it's it's predominantly men who are, are, are sort of buying into it, that the plant-based diet lowers testosterone levels. Right. Um, and I cannot find anything to support that. I've not heard that, but that's so interesting. Yeah, it's, um, it's almost a, a, a sort of slightly sort of um, reactionary or militant kind of belief, a, right. you know, a, a feeling that... That the the vegan diet is is or plant based diet is threatening the nation's testosterone levels. There's not a huge number of men who are thinking it, but it's it's significant enough that I've encountered it a few times. Interesting. And I, th- I think it's just worth debunking that. Mm. Um, you know, we we do not need to be cramming ourselves with red meat um, to maintain our testosterone levels. And actually, we we might be causing other harms because we're driving up all our unhealthy cholesterol. And as we mentioned earlier, that's potentially furring up the arteries. Um, in men's nether regions and, and causing erectile dysfunction. And the oxidative stress that you were just talking about, Natasha, there is an issue with that in sperm health, isn't mm-hmm. there? That's one of the components Usually. that can that can play a part. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, that's why lifestyle is incredibly important because it's going to help um, reduce these harmful chemicals, the free radicals that are circulating in our bodies. And um, having a, a diet which is actually really well balanced, um, got um, a lot of nutrients and antioxidants is going to actually help counteract um, that um, these harmful chemicals that are causing this damage. And if people are thinking, okay, it's all well and good, but I'm busy, what about supplements? So I I would say generally best to get your... um vitamins and minerals from the diet itself because it's going to be actually in its um in its whole and natural form and um the most easily absorbed form um only opt for supplements um if you're actually known to have a deficiency it's been picked up on a blood test or if you're in a high risk group for a deficiency so sam mentioned um, for vegans um who are more prone to have um, vitamin b12 deficiency because vitamin b12 is actually found primarily in animal products and um, vegans 
proteins can get small amounts through um, fortified foods, fortified um, yeast, nutritional yeast, um, milks and um, tofu. But it may not be sufficient for um, the daily nutritional requirements of vegans. I would advise vitamin B12 supplements. I think, again, it's important to mention that um, Department of Health recommend that women take folic acid and that vitamin D, actually most adults in the UK are deficient in vitamin D, particularly in the winter months, you should be taking a vitamin D supplement. And that's then carrying on through once you do conceive. Let's just talk a bit more then about what else we can do to help hormones in terms of a woman's cycle, moving from food, which can obviously have an impact on hormonal balance and imbalance to just understanding more is a key part of really getting to know what's going on with your body isn't it Mm. and I think it's important and empowering for women to understand the hormones within their cycle and what hormone is more dominant what type of what part of the cycle obviously at the beginning of the cycle it's estrogen and the latter half of the cycle it's progesterone I think progesterone is the most important hormone for fertility but it's the one that makes you feel the worst so it's the one that causes your premenstrual tension your irritability or sore boobs all of those reasons but it's so important for good fertility because the progesterone really helps to create a lovely womb lining and if you haven't got that nice womb lining and I like to think of it as a nice comfy duvet that is going to snuggle that embryo when it's ready to implant and if you haven't got good progesterone levels then that's going to really inhibit implantation and therefore keeping those levels as, as as good as you possibly can then then fantastic it's difficult really in many ways to kind of really alter your hormones too much yourself but certainly being healthy and having a really good healthy lifestyle is going to give you the best chance mm. i'm all for women getting a great understanding even before they try and start conceiving you know not just about their hormone levels but understanding their cycle understanding when they're ovulating really getting to grips with what their cycle is telling them and they're we've got these three wonderful natural fertility indicators that actually women aren't told about. We're not told this information at school. We've got temperature, we've got our cervical secretions and our position of our cervix, all of which changes throughout the cycle. So getting a general awareness of our body, and that can include if you want to get some awareness of your hormones and have some hormonal testing, especially if you're suffering from a severe PMT, maybe you want to understand a little bit more what's happening and then maybe consider lifestyle activities or supplements that might help if anything is picked up. Now, we talked about pregnancy before, and that's the ultimate aim mm. of anything to do with fertility. And there's tests once you're pregnant, the pregnancy progress test. So, Natasha, let's just talk a bit more about that, what it means, what it shows. Um, so um, we have a pregnancy reassurance test. So essentially what that does is it checks um, the level of um, pregnancy hormones. Um, and it can be quite useful for those who uh, have been trying to conceive um, and want a quick answer as to whether they've fallen pregnant. So the traditional home pregnancy test um, can actually, it can take a, quite a bit of time, a few weeks sometimes to actually show up on the test. So this is a much quicker method of knowing the answer. It's also quite useful and reassuring for those who have had um miscarriages in the past so they just want to know that um, the hormone levels are actually going up at a good steady level. So in terms of once pregnant the different things that you might be checking because as I I mentioned there is this kind of added anxiety especially if you've become pregnant after suffering from infertility can we just maybe bust a few of the myths around things that should change might change 
will stay the same. Yeah, HCG um, is a hormone um, that increases um, exponentially beginning of pregnancy. It actually, it it doubles initially um, for the first few weeks. Um, So the first trimester, you will notice that. Um, And then towards the end of the first trimester, start to notice that the increases in HCG are less pronounced. Um, So I think really um, beyond the um, nine-week mark, should not get too fixated on looking at the HCG levels. And we'd, we'd normally expect it to double every two to three days, yeah. roughly. Hours, yeah. So you do it initially, and the advice is you don't then do it later because you just freak yeah. yourself out. Exactly. Yeah, it's, we expect it to slow down yeah. and to actually yeah. start tailing off. And I think some people might expect it to keep doubling and doubling and doubling throughout pregnancy. And if they see it slowing down, there might be a worry that their pregnancy is struggling. But from nine or ten weeks onwards, it's perfectly normal to see it slowing down. Okay. Are there other things that you can do once pregnant to just check that you're okay? Because we've got this empowerment of home testing. We've got this anxiety of being pregnant post-infertility. Or is it just now focus on your nutrition? And there's post-pregnancy nutrition support and care that Medichex offer as well, isn't there? Yeah, pregnant women, um, they're more prone to becoming anemic, especially in the later stages of um, pregnancy um, their body's going through all sorts of different changes to cope with the pregnancy the circulation actually um, the volume of circulation volume of blood increases and then as a result um, the hemoglobin the blood, red blood cells that carry oxygen around the body um, they become less concentrated so women become more anemic but if you've got low iron levels then that anemia is going to be a lot more pronounced so we do find that women who are more significantly anemic in pregnancy that need to rely on iron supplements and I think also gestational diabetes and particularly in women who have got uh, PCOS who then conceive they've got a greater risk of gestational diabetes so that's something really that is important to check on and look for if you're any concerned. So basically, we've covered the test that you can do at the early stages when you're trying to conceive. We've talked about how to optimise fertility with diet and nutrition. We've talked a bit about um, understanding your cycle more. Are there more things in those early stages that either men or women can do to be in their peak kind of performance place to try and get pregnant naturally? Well, I think, like I said, we've talked about a lot of things, but we, we haven't talked about particularly stress um, when you're trying to conceive and I think our minds are often the last thing that we consider we consider all the different tests that we can do we consider all the different health aspects but actually giving attention to our mind and considering the stress aspects that can come with just trying to conceive especially if you're going through IVF but even just trying to conceive on a long fertility journey I think it's so important to consider our mental health and take not just consider it but actually take action Think about the stress that's out there. You can't control the stress that's around you, whether it be work stress, relationship stress, trying to conceive stress. But what you absolutely can control is how you respond to that stress. And I think that's so important. I think a a big part of that is recognising that you're stressed. Some of the people I see with the kind of the most profound physical effects of stress are the ones who are internalising it, who aren't recognising that it's there. Um, It might come out in simple muscle tension. It, It may come out in in their cholesterol going haywire but but just actually learning to recognize that that you're struggling a bit you're not coping and that it's okay to say that your cortisol levels will actually go up so um if you're actually someone who's got um, an anxious um, predisposition in general and you're unsure whether or not you're more stressed than usual then um yeah 
potentially the saliva and cortisol test can be of benefit just to indicate whether or not you're more stressed than usual. Because also your body's probably, as a woman, not going to allow yourself to get pregnant if you're so stressed because of all the the hormones and the, the messages it's kind of saying that your body's almost in danger because it's so stressed because there's that whole fight and flight type behaviour, isn't there? Yeah, I think there's, well, there's an awful lot we don't know about stress and fertility. I think we're just literally touching the iceberg with the knowledge that we've got. I think the general consensus is stress isn't going to stop you getting pregnant, but it might take longer. And I think that's probably a reasonable way of looking at it. And I have noticed um, with some of my more anxious patients, my patients going through um, difficult mental health problems, um, may actually notice that their menstrual cycles go all over the place or that some of them even stop having periods altogether. And in terms of overall future-proofing your fertility, which is what we want to empower people to do, is it fair to say that if, for example, you're a younger woman, but you might know something that your mother maybe struggled with her periods or went into menopause early, or you might have had a conversation with your father about something, or you might not have had the conversations, but you might yourself, as a woman, might have irregular periods. As a man, you might have I don't know, an ache, you know, or you might be feeling some discomfort. First of all, we want to encourage people to talk about these things with the people closest to you. But ultimately, what would your advice be to people in terms of what we're now enabling people with home blood testing and with this type of information? I mean, actually, that's a really good question you've asked there, Natalie, because one of the one of the main points that I ask my patients is, what age did your mum have her menopause? Mm. Do any of your sisters have PCOS? Um, because those are the things that we know are going to have some hereditary factors to them. So it's important to, to really ask those questions. And a lot of my patients say, oh, I've never had that conversation with my mum. Go well, and we start don't. talking. No, yeah. no, go and start talking. So, yeah, I think that's a really good, from my point of view, that's what I do. I think that's that's the key one is, is talk to your family about the difficulties they might have encountered for men um it's i mean it's less hereditary in that way it's it's usually much more about how well they're looking after themselves than any um any sort of familial issues and if if men have got an ache particularly um if it's an ache down below i wasn't sure if that's where that question it was but i couldn't say it it wasn't the way to say it right okay yeah so don't don't i mean you know this this is something we we're not very good um, as a nation, at, at talking about our private parts. Um, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm having a consultation with men, I will see them bring up one problem, pretty mm. minor, and then another one, pretty minor. And then oh. as a GP, I get maybe 10 minutes. And we know that men don't get physically examined when it's fertility-related yes. issues unless there has been a conversation about a problem. And so yeah, it's even less fair. likely to find yeah. out this kind of stuff. Definitely. So, And it's often the third problem that comes up in the space of yeah. a 10-minute consultation. <laughs> And I was worried about my, you know, my, my left testicle feels really weird. Can you have a look at it? And just just say it. Just just bring that up first. We need to get more comfortable as a nation at, at talking about these things, mm-hmm. which I think we are, from a generational point of view, I think actually the teenagers who are it's coming changing. through yeah. now are much better. Yeah. I have conversations with my teenage daughters, which I think if I was a generation previous, I would have fainted as a father, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> would um, you have had them with your parents? No, no, never. We, it's no not something we, we ever really discussed. I think I was given a, a, the Osborne book of How Your Body Works when I was aged about 12 and told to go and read it. Oh, yeah, I had um, that. You did? Yeah, yeah that's how I got into medicine. <laughs> 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 it's funny. <laughs> 
But that's the something that we've talked about as well, is that um, all too often medical professionals like yourself would have a better understanding of your body because you may be given that book than most of us who switched yeah. off in our in our biology lessons. Mm. Yeah, so I think it is incredibly important if you have any concerns about your fertility, maybe linked to um, something that's you know happening that you're concerned about with your body or your health. So um, as you mentioned about the ache or whether it's your regular period. So it's important to be completely open and honest with your regular doctor, explain to them why you're concerned about your facility. And then um, we can actually dwell deeper to find out whether there is a root cause um, for your issues. So if you're going to give a tip it can be more than one. If you're going to give a tip or tips to somebody listening to this who today wants to take action and empower themselves to feel in a better place regarding their fertility, what would your advice be? Sam, we'll start with you. Mine's a, a really simple one. Um, I, I sound terribly boring when I say this one because it, it's the same thing every time. It's eat healthily, sleep well, exercise more, drink less, and if you do smoke, don't. And if, if we could sort those five things out, we would have an infinitely healthier, more fertile and happy country, I think. Okay. For me, it's just because it's well known that women and men just don't have enough sex when they're trying to conceive. Um, and I see this all the time, especially not being able to have sex around the most optimum time. But the recommendations are you should be having sex every two to three days throughout the cycle and not just timing around ovulation unless you're really sure when you are ovulating. So having regular sex. Regular sex, actually, interestingly, um, there's some new research that came out to show that if you're having regular sex, it's reminding the uterus that sperm isn't a foreign body and that's acceptable. Um, and therefore, that that's another reason why you should be having regular sex. So, yeah, definitely lots more sex, which is difficult when you're on a long fertility journey. But where you can, lots of sex. For me, the most important point would be um, not to get too stressed or worked up in the process of trying to have a baby because um, that can actually work completely against you just enjoy the whole process of it all so thank you everybody for all your inputs and all that's left to say is if you want to find out more information about what sam natasha and kate were talking about just visit medichecks.com thank you everybody thank you thank Thanks you very much.